and welcome to 9 to 42, the podcast from the team at the Guitar Show UK. Join us for interviews, updates and chat with artists, influencers and those that manufacture the gear that we love. Hello and welcome to 9 to 42, which is the podcast from the guys at the Guitar Show UK. And my very good friend Jason Hunt is grumpy and miserable and full of cold. And that's right, isn't it, Jason? <coughs> well, I'm not grumpy and miserable. I am full of cold. So uh, forgive the coughs and the splutters today. You did cough on cue, though. That was quite impressive. Yeah, thank you. I'm a professional. I know you are indeed. <laughs> you are indeed. Um, before we start, we've got a very special guest. As we occasionally do, we have a bassist uh, on the pod this time and, and we don't have enough basses on so we, we're going to put that right but before we, we start on that this bassist who i've known for quite a while uh, it's his birthday and he's actually agreed to talk to us on a birthday which is a sterling sterling effort so happy birthday pete travis from merlion happy birthday thank you very much yes it is my birthday i thought i was the only one i didn't realize you had other bass players I think we've only had one, haven't we? Oh, have you? Oh, no. Okay. Um, well, we've had Rhino, haven't we, from Quo? We've had Rhino from Quo, yeah. Top man. Top man, Rhino. Uh, he is, yeah. He, he, was, he was good value, to be fair. I can oh, imagine. Else? Have we had another one? Oh, we've had Frank Bello from Anthrax. Yes, we have. Oh. Yes, we have. Oh, in, in fine company, then. I mean, You, fine you may company. well be the third. <laughs> of the Holy Trinity, you are the third. <laughs> exactly. What can I say? Yeah. Yes, well. But on your birthday as well. So on your birthday. That counts double. Uh, that bumps me up. Yes, yeah, yeah, what I'd say. <laughs> that counts double. <laughs> so thank you very much for being being with us on your birthday. It's, it's my pleasure. I don't know whether to start at the beginning or, or, or the end. I think we probably ought to well probably start with the Marillion thing, if that's all right. Um That's probably wise, yeah. It's probably wise. Should we start there? Okay. People can get a bit of context then, can't they? Because you've been in Marillion for a fair few years now, haven't you? Yeah, feels like a long time. <laughs> no, it actually doesn't. It, funnily enough, it, it doesn't feel like that long sometimes. And other times, you know, depending on what's going on, I suppose, in the year, it, it can feel like a long time. But yeah, the, the years have flown by, really. But uh, 40 odd years. I joined in 1982. Wow. 40 so, years. Yeah. That's well done. Yes, I was. I was thinking. I won't. I won't commit myself to a bad maths uh, problem. <laughs> so forty-one years. It's forty. It is forty-one years. I actually got it wrong one year. I wrote forty years, and it's like it's not. By the way, <laughs> Lucy said it's not. By the way, but never mind. <laughs> so before then, are. before then, mm. am I right in saying you were in a bit of a you were in a bit of a, an early pop? Band. You were a bit of a I was. 100 band. I was in one of those sort of bands. It was, yeah, kind of it post, post-punk, new romantic-y thing. I started years and years. So uh, to put it all in context, a long, long time ago, my first professional, I suppose, semi-professional gig in music was playing bass in a progressive rock band called Orthy from Aylesbury. Right. And we used, to, we used to drive around in an old beat-up bus and I was I was 15, 16 at the time. And um, their bass player moved on to do other things. Um, he ended up in Wright, said Fred, funnily enough, 
<laughs> that's another story. So so I was in this band and I was playing kind of a cross between folk. We did things like Jigger Jig and a bit of Stackridgey type music. But we also did quite a lot of proggy stuff and with a bit of golden earring and all sorts of people like that. And um and then punk came along and it's like, oh, what do we do now? You know, because I I at the time punk seemed to just destroy the the music scene where I was because I was we are li living in Aylesbury I've always lived in Aylesbury really although I was born in Middlesbrough um and it was kind of on the outer outskirts of London it was very confusing because there was all these everybody you know if you weren't in a punk band you weren't being current because mm. of the music press but none of the kids that wanted to see live music wanted to see punk bands they wanted to see the bands that they you know had been listening to before they wanted so it was a it was a strange old time um and then i was in yeah sort of new wavy carsy sort of bands and just sort of moved around doing that kind of thing and ended up in a ended up in a band called the metros i mean it was more of a name change than a personnel change i was i was sort of playing around with various rock bands with more or less the same people in them and um and another couple of songwriters that were signed to chapels that were doing country music kind of eaglesy type country music and i used to go down to chapel studio and when they'd written songs chapels wanted them demoed so i would be the bass player on the demos so that's kind of my first recording experience and on the back of all of that um the metros ended up going to america um, because we figured if we can't make it in London, why not try America? It's got to be easier, right? <laughs> which yeah. was which was kind of very backward thinking, really. But um, so that failed. That failed. We didn't. We didn't. We nearly. We we got a lot of interest because we were English and we were different. Hmm. But we couldn't land ourselves a record deal. We had publishers and we had lots and lots of chats with a lot of people in offices on in on very tall tower blocks in new york city which was nice um but we couldn't land a, a record deal so i came back from that and um and that was when i was i was doing a farewell show for um a, a, a bar a well-known bar in the king's head in aylesbury was closing down and they were having a sort of farewell gig and I was roped in to be the bass player in amongst a lot of other people. Um, and Fish was there. And he said, I need a bass player. And I said, OK. And he said, but we're going on tour in two weeks. <laughs> I said, right. He said, um, so, any, any, so anyway, I sort of agreed to go down and meet everybody and, and have a little jam and... Um, and then I kind of I, I I joined the band. I sort of agreed. I started off agreeing to be on the tour. Um, but because I because I'd sort of grown up playing and listening to prog, although I wasn't playing prog at the time, I was kind of right back in where I felt comfortable and I knew how to I knew how to do what Marillion required on the bass because I'd been doing that beforehand. Mm in this band Orphy. But no and also I'd sort of listen I used to, you know, I picked up a lot of stuff from 
all sorts of bands that we're, I'm sure we'll chat about uh, 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 during this uh, podcast. So I won't go on. But yes, and then I joined Marillion. And soon after I joined Marillion, we landed a record deal, which was nice. <laughs> which was nice. <laughs> nice little fast show moment there. <laughs> because you were kind of, you were the last, almost the last missing piece of that first, of that signed incarnation of the band, weren't you? Uh, yes. That yeah, I was I I was um, enough of a difference to make to make it feel like well, there's something here that we can work with, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, it was strange because they 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 they'd done Radio One sessions, and I I mean, Diz the the old bass player, I'm very good friends with Diz, um, and um, you know, I thought he was a good bass player. Maybe he wasn't flamboyant enough for what was required hmm. with long passages of music. You sort of need you need a bit of movement and a bit of, you know, I don't know, melody and maybe flair here and there just to sort of stand out a bit. Because that's kind of what the music sort of required in those days. Um, if you were doing that kind of genre of, of, of you know, music which which Marillion were so um well you're no stranger to both ends of the neck are you no no that's true yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> up, up and down it up and down it all day long <laughs> <laughs> but actually within I'm right in saying within within a year of you joining that's a top 10 album band yeah yes yeah what was that like I can't remember. I mean, I think it was. I think the, the did the first album chart at six or something. I th- I, it was certainly top ten. I wouldn't. I yeah. wouldn't be sure on the exact position, but it certainly no. charted because you were everybody's pick for the band that's going to break, weren't you? I believe so. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that Marillion did before I joined that were right. You know, they had a publicist. They used to hire. They. I was impressed with the professionalism, actually. Um. Because um, they had a publicist, and they definitely had an idea of where they wanted to go, and and you know how they could get there. Mm. And it was a case of we're going to follow, we're going to follow this path as best we can, and this is how you know we think we can we can get attention, get people interested get in the door it was all about getting in the right doors to the right people really and trying to talk to talk to people face to face as opposed to writing letters because you know the amount of letters that just come back with the same sort of response not what we're looking for at the moment you know so that's very that gets very soul destroying we've all had those letters i've still got mine I mean, I'm sure you two have, but, but I've had plenty. Of no, I, I've got I've, I've got them all in a folder at home. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. the one thing there, Pete. Then before we go a bit further, essentially mm. you were never going to have a proper job, then were you? No, I had had a proper job, right? <laughs> and I thought this isn't for me. <laughs> no, I, 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 there were it, it, a few things kind of lined up at the right time. Really, um, one of them was that. I was offered to, you know, offered to go to America and 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 sort of head, see see how I did, 
with yeah. the band I was in. And that was really what I was passionate about. And the other thing was that I was on a four-year course, which was coming to an end. And I wasn't <laughs> sufficiently, um, I, I, I wasn't convinced I was going to pass the last year of the course I was on. It was a TV, it was a radio and television course. All right. Essentially fixing TVs and radio. Right, right, right. So, and that was in the days of valve technology. And it was, um, it was, well, it was, when I started it, it was valve technology. And then this is getting really boring, but I will, <laughs> I'll carry on as, as I've started this. Um, Sony brought out the Trinitron TV, which was all about um, transistors, uh, you know, um, transistors. And they didn't have chips in those days, but they used, they used the, um, they used all the, diodes and transistors in a certain way to to allow the tv to do a certain amount of fault fixing itself right and so the course gradually had to start changing very quickly to become current um so um so consequently the teaching got a little bit strange in places and it wasn't quite when you know you'd look at you'd look at certain things and think well this isn't we haven't been we haven't been taught all of this yet, you know, because <laughs> the teachers were kind of trying to learn about it as, as at the same time as we were, you know. Right. So anyway, so consequently, um, that was quite a happy accident for me because it was very easy for me to leave my job and go to America. The hard part was coming back broke, phoning yeah. my dad up and saying, "Dad, I, I need I need a plane ticket to to come home." He said, "I told you." <laughs> no, he didn't. He was he was really good. But he said, well, OK, he said, but when you get home, we need to have a talk. So we had the talk about you can't do this forever, you know. Because he but the great thing was that he was a um, he was a really, really good semi-professional musician. He was a fantastic jazz pianist. Amazing. I didn't realize how good he was until I became, you know, I, I, I realized that other people's other people who claimed to be good at playing piano just weren't in his league you know he was he was amazing actually um and he was really really he was the person who inspired me in music and um he was never allowed to to, to follow his dream so he said well you know what are you going to do um and i said well i want to i want to do this um see how far i can get with this professionally he said okay then well let's make a deal i said well how about if i nothing's happened by the time I'm 25, then I'll give up and find a proper job. So, so that's what I did. So that's allowed me, that allowed me to have that gap to explore how I was going to become a professional musician. And gradually, um, you know, I joined Marillion and we signed a record deal and, and gradually surprise, you'd, you'd, you'd assume that once you sign a record deal, that's it. You've sort of become a, a professional musician but it takes longer than that really because you don't really see any money you're busy paying other people back first yeah uh, and you do that for years because that's the game that's played really we're going to give you this much money oh but because of everything that's happened and your sales figures weren't quite what we expected you still owe us all of this you know because of our marketing budget was this and blah 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 and deductions and all sorts of things so anyway uh so consequently yeah it takes a while to actually see any money yourself 
Um, You're the band that changed all of that, aren't you? We are the band that changed all of that. Yeah. At the at, yeah, I mean, we had to wait for time to to um to help really with all of that because we were di- we were despondent with EMI and um and we and then we were despondent with the independent record labels and at just at the sort of time where we were thinking well what are we going to do in future because we don't want to sign another deal but we need a certain amount of money to be able to make another record and then the, the internet just started to break at about the right time it just started to get more than just a nerdy thing that happened at weekends and and you know in people's bedrooms <laughs> so um <laughs> yeah i know how that sounds you know what I mean. <laughs> so um so yeah we were we were we were able to sort of um get on get on to that and i think we were the first band in in the uk certainly to have have our own website wow you know shortly after indie things started having websites and then mainstream companies and banks started to get on board but that probably took another year or two it might have been a bit quicker than that but we were we were very very ahead of what was going on there so just in between those two things then we've gone from your signing to then rejecting the whole model but (laughs) actually in between all of that there's a fair amount of success but also you you know and it's and it's difficult for a lot of people we speak to a lot of people on here who are whose careers are based around youtube they're based around self you know they're based around a lot of the things that Merlin actually did first but yeah. you, you were part of that that old model of you got signed and whatever the 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 records were selling you 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 were still signed you were constantly almost being told that you still owe us money um yeah. and at any point in time you could be dropped yeah, that's basically what happens, and uh, and the um, you know, and every now and again, the goalposts have changed as well. So, so for example, um, there was a t- when we first signed, um, videos that you made were recoupable, were non-recoupable. Sorry, they were non-recoupable, which meant the money that cost to make the record we had to pay back out of our 7% or whatever it was. They kept their 93 and we had to pay back the record. But with the video, we didn't have to pay anything back. And then and then Duran Duran made Rio um, and it cost a lot of money, so much money that the record company thought, do you know what, we'll, we'll start recouping some of this. So it was like, <laughs> oh, videos are now, half recoupable and then they became completely recoupable um so you know you'd be in a stupid situation where you'd make a record i think with you know there's instances where the video cost more to make than the album and the singles that it would that you know that that the video was kind of representing yeah to, to be fair though if I was Duran Duran and I knew it was non-recoupable, I'd have gone to the Caribbean or Absolutely. and hired a yacht. <laughs> they obviously um, thought of that up before we did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just don't get Merillion's music is that kind of 
Caribbean I don't think it would have worked, would it? No. <laughs> Having said that, we have made some awful videos, that, so maybe we should have done that. <laughs> maybe not a yacht, maybe a barge. Maybe a barge, yeah. Barge round Birmingham or something, or you know, or in or in or in the West Country. That would have suited some of our music quite well. Uh, but you're right, actually, Ant, because we did. You know, I, I'm 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 telling a a rather sad tale here but we had a lot of success and we had and we did you know the the record company did put a lot of money behind us but um it's it's interesting when you suddenly you know when you've when you've had quite a lot of money spent on your first album and it does well Mm. and then with the second album you can see the disinterest because they don't think they've got anything to sell it's like the first album was always going to be interesting to people because it was new it was a new band it was a new thing it was a new direction for them to take you know we're signing an old style rock band in 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 the kind of midst of all this new wave and um and post-punk and you know people would be like well that's interesting i wonder what that is and all the people from the north who didn't like punk anyway i'm like well that's that's more up my tree I'll be buying that. I will. Um, so, and they put lots of posters on train stations, massive posters on train stations of of the first album cover. And with the second album, it, you could just see that uh, there wasn't really, oh, well, what, mm, what are we going to do with this then? And so the third, misplaced, strange enough, the third album, we had to do on a real budget, which is why we went to Berlin, because at the time, Berlin was, you know, Germany was 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 a cheap place to go. Mm. Um, so that's where we went. It was a kind of budget studio. Chris Kimsey was doing kind of budgety. He was doing stuff because he'd been working. Chris Kimsey was the producer, uh, incidentally, of Misplaced. He'd been working with the Stones for quite a few years exclusively, and he was just he was just trying to get his name back up, out into the world of of um, the record companies so that they knew you know he he was still a producer and was still willing you know up for work essentially so he did killing joke just before he did us and um we went to um hansa tom studios in in berlin and um again we wrote you know we wrote you know what 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 we um what we thought was a good album uh, and re- the record company somebody from the record company i won't name any names came over and sort of wasn't that impressed i think they fell asleep during the playback <laughs> if i'm mist- i might be mis- I mean, that might be the next album but um and and this this you know the word was well there's there's the, we can't do anything with this there isn't a single and Chris said, look, there's a song on here, Kaylee. He said, I'll make that a single for you. He said, I know what I could, I know how to make that into a single for you. And I was thinking, well, there's at least, because Lavender, I was thinking, well, Lavender, you know, you just, you just lift them and yeah. make them into, you know, top and tail them essentially. Um, so anyway, uh, Chris did what he did with Kaylee and, um, and as soon as you realised, as soon as EMI realised what, what was going on, because, you know, 
critic what what used to happen with Marillion songs traditionally was that they they chart high. Garden Party did it, for example, chart high first week and then drop mm. because all the people that were interested in it had bought it. They'd found out where it was on, where they could buy it, and they bought it because that's the kind of following we had. We didn't have your mainstream pop mm. following. We had a sort of cult rock following. Um, but with Kaylee, it started to keep climbing and keep climbing. And all of a sudden, you, you, you saw the effect that EMI could really have on your career. They just they, th they threw money at it. They flew us back from we were we were on tour because because we booked a tour thinking, well, the single's not, you know, going to do that much. It might do something. It's something for them to to work with. Uh, we'll go back out on tour because that's where we're making money. And we had, we were we were told we had to be on top of the pops. So so they flew us back from I think we were in the south of France or somewhere. They flew us back on a Learjet after a show. We got we we finished the show, got onto this plane, landed in Luton at about two in the morning. They kept the airport open <laughs> <laughs> and got cars for us, and then we were driven home and then driven to the BBC the next day to do Top of the Pops. Was that the one where Fish had lost his voice and he wrote the lyrics down and did it on a flip chart? Oh, that might have... I don't know. That I've got a feeling that was Punch and Judy, actually. Oh, I could have sworn it was Kaylee. It, you might be right. You might be right. I, I, I only lived through it. I just I can't <laughs> claim to remember any of it. I was only there. I was only there. <laughs> it was a Thursday night and I was sat watching Top of the Pops. Yeah. I thought it was mm. the funniest thing. I thought... That it was a a play on the you have to mime on top of the pops you can't do it live and I thought it was like the most punk rock thing you could do was show how fake it was, mm. but turns out he just lost his voice so he had lost his voice but I think it was also a bit of a tongue in cheek yeah yeah, yeah. poke because you know they the the irony was I mean there were stupid things that TV companies do really. Well, they'd say, oh, we need you on set because we're going to time it. It's like, just run the song. You don't need to time us. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to play as long as the song plays. Just time the song. That's all. You And oh, we need all the camera angles. So then and then, you know, well, they'd have you. They, they, they'd, you'd be hanging around from nine in the morning till. I don't know what time they filmed. They probably finished filming about six or seven at night. Hmm. Every act. And then they opened the bar and you were allowed to have a drink. Up until then, it was all teetotal and sandwiches from the canteen. As it happens, I, I wasn't a Marillion fan at that point in time. I came to Marillion a little bit later. What? I know, I know. It's outrageous, <laughs> Pete. I know, I'm sorry. But the, but the point is... You only needed to live through that year to know how much radio play that song got. I know I mean, it was everywhere. It was absolutely. It was. It was, it was the. It, it's got to be one of the songs or sounds of that particular year. It is. Yeah. Um, you know, and then obviously followed up with lavender as well, which also was so remarkably distinctive that, and it was only years later when I heard misplaced, which I heard literally was years later when I heard misplaced. 
I would never have thought those two songs could have been part of that album until I then heard the album, if that makes sense. Because they sound like singles. Yeah, I know. It's funny, isn't it? it? It's it's just, that's how music is. You know, You if you put it in the right context, it can be anything, really. Hmm. He said in a very deep and meaningful way. I thought he did that really, really well. <laughs> Thank you. It's all right. And that yeah, start and... that starts a ride, doesn't it? That starts a roller coaster ride for a for a for a, a few years, doesn't it? Because yeah. because then there's three or four singles on the back of, you know, you've got Heart of Lothian still off misplaced, and then you've got what three off clutching at straws, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um. And and you're kind of everywhere, aren't you? We are, and the thing is, we were everywhere in the whole of Europe as well. Hmm. You know, it was. I mean, what what happened in England was happening. In Italy, it was happening in Spain, it was happening in Ger- Germany. We were we were huge in Germany. And um, we did a lot of, we had to then, you know, that's when you start really working. You had to just lots and lots of interviews, lots and lots of TV. Um, and it's never ending. And when, and, and with the touring schedule we did, we were, we were practically never home, you know, no. for, for those years. And um, and that's probably what caused part of the, you know, the the, the demise of, of of that um, of that lineup, really. Yeah, yeah. Do you think then joining the two things together? Because we've talked a little bit about, you know, because I mean, it's it's quite well known, Marillion. You you were with EMI. Uh, you ended. You stayed with EMI a little bit when obviously you changed uh, singer when Steve Hogarth joined, and uh, then you end up. We're doing a couple of albums on on more independent labels, and then obviously you crowdfunded an album and, and essentially took control of your own your your, yes. your own career at that point. Yeah, yeah. Do you think do you think all that that kind of publicity, all of that following you had without without misplaced, without clutching? I, I guess it would have been far harder to end up where you've ended up today because you needed that that fan base, didn't you? Ultimately? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Um, that's that's. Um, it's really hard to predict that. I mean, obviously, we needed the fan base, but just around. I mean, you know, when Marillion started, bands could get that fan base by playing. It's a bit, you know, in America, you can you can you can get a fan base, or the way the way you have still, I think, you have to break America, is by just touring everywhere. Yeah. And if you do enough touring, um, you know, that fan base will ha- does happen to a degree. Um, so it's uh, obviously, obviously having that fan base and that fan, you know, um, with with EMI's sort of help um, and the TV and the exposure that, 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 that all of that brought, that does that, that did probably make it easier. Yeah. Although we did lose, we lo- we lost a few fans when Steve joined and Fish left, because you know they were always going to. It was a bit of a split thing, yeah. and then people gradually, you know, some people came back, new people came to us. So, you know, it's well, um, I'm one of those newbies. I, I season's yeah. end was my interest. I mean, they say I knew, I knew, you know, I knew Kaylee and I knew all the singles, but. But the first album of yours I ever heard was Season's End, and then yeah. I and then I went backwards. Um, 
because at that point I couldn't go any further forwards because there only was seasons. <laughs> end, but, so I, I went backwards. Yeah. And then was and then was you know aware of everything going forwards as you know going forwards as well. So so I guess I fit in that that camp of. But yeah. then again, I didn't have a view on the split because I, I'd not lived through no, it. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's uh, that's the funniest thing. And also, there's a, there's a lot of people like yourself who will go back, have a listen to the old albums, and mm, not, not, oh, I'm not not really sure about that, you know. Mm. But I think that's. I mean, I think that quite often is the case. The place you join a band is where you know yeah. where you think it's best yeah probably yeah um and i think we're all like that i think even you know musicians always like to think oh no we you know we know we know better than that but i don't think you know i think generally speaking where you where you thought about you joined up you know you joined in with a band because you thought oh that's really good ben folds five for example you know where i where i started listening to ben folds five is probably where i think it was you know at its best you know, but anything before, well, I'm not sure there was anything before, but if there had have been, I'm not sure I would have. This isn't going well, is it? I should have thought this. I just threw the name Ben Fold 5 out to, and then realised that I probably, well, I listened to them on the second album, actually. So I did, yeah, the first album doesn't have the same appeal as the second album. The second album. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, well, I mean, I did the same thing. I mean, I... I went back and I listened to Misplace pretty mm. much for for about six months and didn't listen to anything else. Mainly, right. I think, because I was an angst-ridden teenager and didn't think anybody <laughs> in the world understood me. So I kind of had it on repeat for a little while. And then I realised yeah. I was just literally a grumpy fucker and nobody wanted to talk to me <laughs> for that reason. So there I, you go. It's a fine line. It's a fine line. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, I mean... 41 years. Okay, 41 years. I mean, if you talk, let's, the bit we've kind of touched on, the crowdfunding thing is around the turn of the century. Yeah. So that's around about 99, 2000, 2001. Exactly. It starts off with a tour and then it's an album. And it then quickly becomes the way you work. I mean, you're you're a self-contained Very unit. quickly, yeah. I mean, we you were know. surprised at the take-up, actually. Well, I, I mean, yeah, I was. I was a bit surprised. And I was a bit hesitant as well. I was a bit, I was, a, I was one of the, are you sure we want to do this? Mm. Because for me, I didn't want people thinking it's about the ownership thing and it's about what people think they're getting for their money. It's like if people are prepared to just let us do what we do and put the money in knowing they'll get something at the end of it that's fine but if people are putting the money in thinking oh i can you know this is the sort of album i want to hear from you yes. guys and oh i, I don't like those you know can i have a look at the lyrics before you release it <laughs> i want to make sure uh, otherwise i might want my money back you know I, if the, anything like that was going to happen so we put in we put in a lot of um you know we just we just kind of spelt out what we were prepared to give and 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 what we were and what people should be prepared to expect to a degree so so that you know um and and guarantees for both sides really and then and then what really surprised me since and always does and it's a marian fan thing i think it is is just how 
how nice people are and how how much space people will give you mm. you know there's there's because I, I can imagine with some bands fans it would be chaos you know there's i'm sure there's a lot of bands that just want to run away from a concert hall after they don't you know the communication thing with the fans would just be a bit too much but with us and our fans it's it's lovely because it's mm. it's like a big it is like a big family I can attest to that, it is. I think that's quite true, though, isn't it? That if you're a band that kind of does stretch what's acceptable within the genre that you kind of operate in, you know, there's that really famous quote from Angus Young where an interviewer says to him, you know, you've made the same album 11 times. And he says, no, 12. And <laughs> and, and that's absolutely fine. Uh, That's a great answer. But if if you've never pushed the boundaries, you know, I suppose your fans have a right to expect the 13th ACDC album that sounds exactly the same as the previous 12. But if you're prepared to kind of push, and you always have, I think Mm. your fan base kind of accepts it. I mean, there's lots of bands that I really like that have done, for me, that weird album. I yeah, don't, I, I don't mind them doing that weird album. They're an artist; they can do what they like. Exactly. Yeah, I think I think that's the thing, isn't it? You know, and I'm, I mean, we have we've done some, we've really stretched the uh, the the listeners' uh, patience probably <laughs> in some with with some of the things we've done. But um, but you know, um, but there's always there's always a you know there's always. A, there's always reasons why we do what we do, and and in in a lot of cases, us going off on a bit of a tangent and 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 making what some people might not think is our strongest work allows us to come back with something else a bit later on, and 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 do something that's you know they they might consider the best thing ever. Mm. You know, it's funny sometimes it takes. You know, we did a, we did radiation, and then we came back with a couple of albums that were more probably nearer to what people would have expected us to be doing. And then we did um, anarachnophobia, uh, and you know, came back with uh, uh, I can't remember what was next. Jesus, marbles, wasn't it? Yeah, it probably was. Was it marbles? Was that next? I think so. Oh, you've got them in order, haven't you, Ant? I I actually do have them on order on the shelf, and, <laughs> oh, and, it, and it was Marvel's next. They're not they're not in they're not in order in my mind. That's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So you know, um, sometimes you, they just need a bit of time to, and sometimes they, sometimes the the, the following album will be what you were hoping for. You know, mm. I think one of the greatest compliments I could pay uh, about Marillion and about the songwriting process, is I don't know if you've written my favourite Marillion song yet. Oh, right. Yeah. I see where you're coming from. Be- because We're just about to do that. You, you're, you might well be. You might well, you know, and I know you're it's writing a, at the moment. It's a song for Ant. But, that, but the, that's what it's going to be called. <laughs> but the point is, even this many number of albums in, I don't look back and go oh yeah that's the that's the best thing you ever did and i like everything since but no that's the one 
I can, I can still go to fear or still go to an ad for it's dark and say, I don't know what my life would be like without those albums. And yet they appear, uh, you know, 35, 37 years into your career. Mm. So, yeah, it's so, funny, isn't it? It is funny how, how that works. I mean, that's why it's so great to be in this band, really, for mm. me, because we're, we sort of, we're, we, we often say this, we've got the Holy Grail, really. We've got, we do, we do what we want. We've got our own studio to do it in. Um, we're fairly self-sufficient. And, you know, we're, we're sort of committed. We're committed to do the best work we possibly can. And we always pitch that against the best thing we've done, which yeah. is probably the last album, actually, may well be. You know what, if it's not as good as what we've just released, and we think that is the best thing we could have done at the time, then it it, we, it gets scrapped, which is why it takes us so bloody long to write, actually, because well, we scrap so much stuff. Well, and it's the process that we none of us really understand how we get our best work. So it's we're still kind of, I don't know. And I think if we ever worked out how it happens, that we get the best results, it would probably stop happening. It's kind of, it's just something, it's this th weird thing that happens when we're in the right frame of mind, all in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Which it's is harder, just, harder than you think to get the five in the right place. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of, it's that, it's that thing where you, if you think too hard, you not, you, it's never going to happen. No. You've just got to be, not really thinking about it, but allowing it to happen and remembering what it was when it does. <laughs> so outside of Marillion then, because the thing is you've got an entire career yeah. outside of Marillion. If you look at the other things that you've done. Oh, you know, yeah. Um, because I can point oh, that... towards Kino, Transatlantic, um, you know. Edison's children, Edison's children, yeah. Some stuff with with big big train. I mean, there's you you're never not busy, are you? No, no. I mean, take today. I'm doing a podcast on my birthday. Yes, you <laughs> are. Yes, bless you for that. Bless you for that. <laughs> but how's all that other stuff come around then? Where 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 does the desire to 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 be that busy? Once I started, I realised that it was really beneficial for me to do other things as well because we've you know we've we've all been in the band for quite a while mm. and we could stagnate we could get so fed up with each other that we don't want to be together any anymore and i think really the re the only reason the main reason there are lots of reasons why we're still together but one of the big reasons why we are still together with the same lineup is because we get on so well and we're good mates and we respect each other as musicians. And that can sometimes go away or wane or, you know, you can get complacent um, and you can just get used to people. And so for all of us to, to, to go and do other things as well really helps hmm. when we get back together. The You know, it's like, oh, it's it's exciting. It's it's. You're all pleased to be there, you know. You, you're all you're all looking forward to what you're going to create together. So, so it's a good thing to do, and it all came about through Mike Portnoy actually, because um, he um, 
Uh, long story short, he 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 emailed Steve Hogarth after um, Dream Theatre had done a little gig in London, um, which was kind of a, a tribute to their favourite their favourite bands or the bands that influenced them the most. And um, so Steve Hogarth and Steve Rothery joined them to play Easter. And there was talk about whether it could be released and blah, 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 and how that would happen. And were they happy with the, the you know, the take and whatever. And at the bottom of one of these emails, it said, by the way, would you would you ask Pete if he wants to um, join a project? So Steve read this out and said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, what do you guys think? And they said, well, we think you should do it. So I did. And were you the first one? Then I got one? hit by a car. You, yes, you did get hit by a car. <laughs> I was going to come to that. Were you the first? Were you the first member of the band to then go and do something? Separate? No, right, no. Okay. Actually, as my, myself and Ian had had been the rhythm section for a couple of Steve Hackett songs right. a few years earlier. Um, can't remember which album it's on now. So that was probably the first thing. Let's say it is. I, I suspect. I suspect it's the first. Because when was that? Was that two thousand? No, two thousand. When was the first transatlantic album? I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to find that as well. <laughs> two thousand. It was two thousand. Yeah. Right. Simpty. Yes, that was it. Two thousand. Yes. So. Um, so it probably was then. Yeah, I would think it was the first, um, up, apart from the, you know, doing a couple of tracks with with Steve Hackett. Yeah, because this that is was, a pro- this is a proper project, isn't it? This is a this, this is, is a proper a, project. This is a, yeah, this is a group with um, a lineup, producing albums, touring. Yeah, it was always supposed to be a project, and then it kind of became a band. And, and now, it did, didn't it? it you know, it became it, a, 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 a with a, with a very a very definite identity and and what happened yeah. very very quickly. I mean, because mm. it's super group territory, really, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah, and and you know, and it was. I mean, it was. Um, it was. It was. It was well thought of. Thought out. Um, the you know the um, the whole thing. The record company liked it. The sales were good. Um, it was sort of profitable. Mm. So it was. It was a, it was a very worthwhile and it was fun. It was fun mm. for me to do, and um, I mean, everything was done super quick in Transatlantic compared to how we do things in Marillion. Yeah, you know, because Neil Morse is a prolific songwriter. He's the keyboard player, singer for people who don't know Transatlantic. He's in Spock's Beard, or he was. Um, there's Royna Stolp from the Flower Kings. Again, he's a prolific songwriter. I mean, he goes in his studio every day and just writes music. And it's mm-hmm. either, it doesn't matter what he writes. Sometimes it's jazz, sometimes it's prog, sometimes it's pop. But he just writes whatever comes into his head and he'll put it into something. Um, you know, and so a lot of his music went into Transatlantic. With the first album, um, I didn't write anything beforehand because i didn't really realize what my the remit was my and because i i found mike up because i'd heard some demos and i said mike i'm not sure this is for me and he said yeah honestly i said but i said i'm i'm not one of these kind of chops 
you know, bass players. I'm not, I'm not a fast bass player. He said, I, do, I want you to do what you do. He said, what I like is what you, you know, you grooving and me playing. He said, that would be great together. So um, I went along because Neil had played, played a centre demo over and, he, and he'd played all the bass parts. And he said, sorry about my sloppy bass playing. And he played this solo, bass solo. And it was, was like, <laughs> right, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to learn how to play that. That's not something I can just suddenly pull out of the bag, you know. So, um, so I had to kind of step up a bit. I had to kind of change my thinking and change my playing a little bit and just bring a lot more energy because I realized, you know, Mike's a show player, you know, it effectively became a show band on stage. Mm. Everybody was just trying to, it was like being in a, in, in a prog version of the who really, <laughs> <laughs> you know, everyone, everyone's playing to the best of their ability, you know, and, and, and kind of showing off and everyone had little bits that, you know, were were geared to their playing. So so that was cool. Um and it was fun to do. Hmm. And then on top of that, there's there's Edison's children, which are which that's still running now, isn't yes, it? And that's a different kind of project again, isn't it? Yeah. That's um well that's kind of um it's uh, what is it? What is Edison's children? It's kind of like Floydy. It's it's funny because um Eric is from New York, but he's really, really into English rock. Mm. You know, he's really into English heavy bands. He's into Floyd, massively into Animals. I think Animals was the first band, uh, first album by Floyd that he heard. And so there's a lot of that kind of Floydy angst mm. going on. There's a, and there's a lot of soundscape stuff. And I'm basically the engineer producer, I guess. And um, Eric and I are the main writers. We've got Rick Armstrong actually joined the band a few years ago and um, is going to be predominantly on this album. You um, might have to explain to people who Rick Armstrong is. Rick Armstrong is the um, the son of Neil Armstrong. And it is it's that the Neil, Neil Armstrong. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the Neil Armstrong who, who was who um, landed on the moon. Hmm. Yeah. And, um, and he's a, he's a keyboard. He's a, well, he plays bass, keyboards, guitars, you know, he actually studied piano hmm. uh, when he was a child. So, so he's pretty good on the keys and um, he's brought another dimension to the, um, to the project. We're currently working on an album at the moment, which is one of those things that will just run until it's finished, you know, yeah, but it's um, it's it's really good. It's a good project for me because it's I've had to learn about being the librarian, like Mike is with Marillion. I've had to learn, you know, how to record everything well enough to 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 make an album, how to keep track of all the versions of songs, back everything up, make copious notes of little bits of guitar solos and this, that, and the other that we want to keep along the way so um so it's been a good it's been a good it's been a good project for me to learn all of that mm. and the last thing i think about when i'm doing all of that and writing the songs is the bass it's i've quite a few times there'll be a song where i'll say well this song's nearly ready but 
I've just realised there's no bass on it. So, <laughs> and either and in the past it was either my myself or because funnily enough Eric started out on bass as well. So it, one of us two would play bass. But with Rick as well, it's like, well, who wants to play bass? You know, unless I've specifically written something on the bass that I think, oh, it'd be good if I did that. You know, I've got visions or, of. Spinal Tap, where all three of them played bass. Big on, on well, big luckily, luckily they did it, so so we don't have to suffer that again. So. <laughs> well, Pete, yeah, perfect time to draw that to a close. I can't believe we've been talking for fifty minutes. It's gone. It's gone. Have literally we? gone. In, gone in it. Gone in a second. Thank you very much. Very, That's very a much. Pleasure. Uh, I don't feel like we've actually said much, but I guess we have. Well, there's a lot of something. There, <laughs> there is. Yeah, there is. There is, isn't there? There is. Uh, so we end on a spinal tap three bass guitar moment. I, 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 and I honestly, I think that should be. It's a shame that Edison Children don't put out seven inch singles, which I think, I guess, is impossible with average song lengths of about thirty minutes. But um, um, you know, because you could have had that as the B side, really. We could have. We could have. Men- mention it to the boys next time you see them. I will. Yeah. I will. Great to talk right. to you. Um, it's a pleasure. Uh, Jace, I will chat to you next time. Do we have anybody to thank, Jace? Are we all right? No, no, we're all right. We're all right. Nobody to thank. That's a bit of an an in-joke there. But um, thanks, everybody. Take care. We will speak to you soon. Thanks for listening to 9 to 42, the podcast from the team at the Guitar Show UK. If you've enjoyed the show, then please remember to hit the subscribe button and share with other like-minded souls. For more information about 9to42, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at The Guitar Show UK. This has been an A Short Stories production.